How do you tell the difference between healthy self-esteem and full-blown narcissism? And how can you tell where you fall on that spectrum? And if you or someone you love is in a relationship with a narcissist or has been in a relationship, how do you make sense of that experience? And is there any way to help it shift in a more healthy direction? That is what today's episode is all about. But first, Relationship Alive is my offering for you so that you can have the most amazing, healthy, thriving relationships possible. If you are finding the show to be helpful for you, please consider a donation to ensure that we can continue. In order to choose something that feels right for you, simply visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Bin, Pascal, Anne, and Jolene. Thank you so much for your generous and ongoing support of the Relationship Alive podcast. Now, as you can probably imagine, when you want to talk to someone about narcissism, whether it's admitting that perhaps you have narcissistic tendencies or trying to delicately inquire as to whether or not they might see how they have narcissistic tendencies, it takes some skill. And so I put together a free download for you, my top three relationship communication secrets. This guide, if you follow these steps, will help you Communicate with anyone about anything challenging in a way that helps you stay connected and perhaps even be more connected after the conversation than you were when it started. The guide is free and all you have to do to download it is visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Now, before we get underway, I have two more quick things to just tell you about. The first is that I would love to know a little bit more about you. And so I created a survey. Uh, it's anonymous. It's very quick to fill out. All you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash survey or text the word wondering to the number 33444 because I'm wondering about you and I'll send you a link so that you can fill out the survey. Or if you go to neilsatin.com slash survey, it takes you right there. It's quick to fill out, it is anonymous, and it will help me ensure that I keep the podcast relevant to you in your life. Um, thanks so much in advance for taking the time to fill that out. And finally, if you are on Facebook and haven't joined us yet, please come join the Relationship Alive community. We have more than 2,000 members who are creating a safe space for you to talk about your relationships. The Relationship Alive community on Facebook. All right, I think that is it. It's time to get on with the show. Hello 
and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. This has come up a lot lately, where you hear people talking about one of the most pernicious epidemics to affect society and relationships. It's the epidemic of narcissism. And the reason why I call it an epidemic is not because I came up with that. It's because it's been labeled an epidemic with a lot of fear attached to it, that perhaps the way that our society is, the way we've been raising children, uh, the way that we are on social media, that that has fostered a whole generation of narcissists. And perhaps because we've become more... uh, more actively seeking help when we're in trouble, then it's easier to uh, see what's going on around us and see um, perhaps if those people around us are affected by narcissism because it has uh, a profound impact on us. And that being said, the way that we've looked at it has been pretty black and white. And in that black and white view of what narcissism is... There hasn't been a lot of room to actually know what kind of things you can change, what's actually healthy and what isn't. Do you, if narcissism is this inflated sense of self, do you want to not have a sense of self? Like, how does that even work? And are there places where narcissism is actually good for you or for your relationship or for the world? These are the kinds of questions that we are going to be addressing today with our esteemed guest, Dr. Craig Malkin. He's the author of the internationally acclaimed book, Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists. Uh, Dr. Malkin is a clinical psychologist and he's a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. He's been featured on NPR and Fox, so he's covering the whole spectrum there. <laughs> and, um, and you might also get a sense that this is a particularly relevant conversation for today's world. So I'm super excited to have Craig Malkin here with us today. I just want to let you know that As always, we will have a detailed transcript available for today's episode, which you can get if you visit neilsatin.com slash narcissism. And if you don't know how to spell that, feel free to Google it. No one's going to feel make you feel bad about that. neilsatin.com slash narcissism. Or you can always text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. I think that's all the details. And let's get on with the conversation. Craig Malkin, I'm so excited to have you with us here today on Relationship Alive. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Neil. Um, I was feeling this hint of irony as I was, because every episode I start with, I tell people, if you, you know, if you want to just text the word passion to the number 33444, um, you can get a transcript. And as I was saying the word passion, I was reminded of how in your book, you talk about the link between narcissism and passion and, and how much perhaps we owe Um, we owe to degrees of narcissism in our world. Obviously, it's expressed really um, malevolently at times, and other times it's so uh, beneficial to our world. Um, What do you, 
this is maybe like a really tough place to start, but I'm curious for your take on that. What's what's required and why is there this link between narcissism and passion? After all, that's often what draws us into relationships with narcissists is that heightened feeling of passion and intensity that we experience with them. It is a tough place to start, but it's an important place to start. Really what you're asking about is what we have come to call healthy narcissism. So we'll get into more detail about this, but briefly, 50 or 60 years of research demonstrate that the average happy, healthy person around the world, this is cross-cultural research, mind you, including China, the average happy, healthy person doesn't view themselves as average. They view themselves as exceptional or unique to some extent. They see themselves, yeah, they see themselves through slightly rose-colored glasses. Uh, This is what we think of as healthy narcissism. And in the research I did with my colleagues, research uh, that others have done, because at this point there are four measures uh, that tap into healthy narcissism, also called uh, moderate self-enhancement. And I want to make a point here. This is not self-esteem. Narcissism and self-esteem are not the equivalent. Even healthy narcissism and self-esteem are not equivalent because healthy narcissism is tilted slightly towards the positive. And what it, what turns out in this research is that people see themselves through these slightly rose-colored glasses, feel happier, they're able to persist in the face of failure, they're able to main, maintain big dreams. There's their, that sense of passion where that comes in. And they may even live uh, live longer because there's some tie-in between moderate or healthy self-enhancement and health measures. So what we're finding is it's just that ability to maintain a, a, a little bit, again, those slightly rose-colored glasses, just enough to be happy, healthy, maintain some intense engagement in your ambitions or your visions for yourself and and others uh, that can provide a kind of fuel. And then if we get too focused on other people to the exclusion of ourselves, then we lose some of that passion. That is to some extent uh, that passion and engagement comes from being able to let others' needs and feelings fade from you just long enough to sort of keep you going, but not so long that you become deeply self-involved. That's a good way to think about healthy narcissism or moderate self-enhancement. Right. You can you can be present and you can even be internal, but you don't lose connection. Precisely. Another way to think about this is uh, secure attachment. That is our ability to feel like when we're sad, scared, lonely, blue, we can safely turn to others, uh, one special person or, or even people like a group and depend on them for mutual caring and comfort and support that we're safe to some extent in their hands. Secure attachment in the research is tied 
very closely to this healthy narcissism. What's fascinating is people who are securely attached don't become so uh, driven by that drive to feel special that they lose sight of other people's needs and feelings or even behave in a hurtful fashion. So it's like secure attachment both brings out those rose-colored glasses for ourselves and others, I go into great detail in rethinking narcissism about this. It, it both brings out those rose-colored glasses and it also keeps us tethered so that we don't tip into dangerous territory where uh, we are so addicted to that experience of feeling special that we go out of our way to get it, including hurting other people. Yeah. Yeah, and I loved how it was interesting that you mentioned in your book that there was this study done that one of the most, uh, one of the strongest indicators for longevity and happiness in a relationship was a couple's ability to see each other as better than they actually are. So there's, there's like this healthy relational narcissism as well. Right. Those rose colored glasses that people wind up developing again, closely related to our ability to safely depend on others, uh, to securely love, they extend to our partners. So there was this large scale study of 40,000 people. You're referring to what, what's sometimes called the pickle study. I think because of the, the variables that were identified to be strongly related, one of them was PI, positive illusions. That was the most, that was the strongest way more than self-esteem or, or what you might think of it as sort of a winning personality. It was one or both partners seeing uh, their partner as better than they were by objective measures. That sounds odd, but there's lots of objective measures like intelligence. And there was an, a recent replication of this study where ha happy, healthy people uh, viewed themselves as ha I think it was a funny number, like 80% of people in this large scale study over 2000 believed themselves to be, uh, to have above average intelligence was of course, statistically is impossible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, what we're talking about is just again, slightly tilted towards the positive. And it turns out that's helpful. It's like the root. There's a, there's a, a place for it in healthy relationships. I make a distinction between extreme or addictive or pathological narcissism and this sort of playing with positive illusions that, we're really what we're talking about is being special to a partner as opposed to special for the world or for others, which is performative. We feel like the gleam in, in their eye. They feel like the gleam in ours. That's a very loving, secure relationship. So it reminds me of a time when a friend of mine who had just gotten out of a challenging relationship happened upon a book about narcissism and in reading this book, she had this huge revelation that, oh my goodness, so many of my problems in this relationship were that I was with a narcissist. And while it was great that that gave her some relief to know that, what I noticed was that I started noticing lots of people labeling others as narcissists. And for me, that's caused me to wonder, are there really that many narcissists out there? Um, are they all as bad as as all that? Or or is there this spectrum of what 
people actually, what we can expect people to act like and behave like, and some of those things being really problematic and other things um, being something that you could actually work with. So that's why your book on rethinking narcissism was such a relief for me because it, it really addresses that head on. And I'm wondering if you could talk for a moment about what is, what is this spectrum of narcissism and where can people land on it and where is it workable and where is it not? Absolutely. Happy to talk about the spectrum. The first thing I should say, though, is the way I describe the spectrum is not the way it, it has often been described in the past, although a lot of people are adopting my version of it because of it, because it's more inclusive. It helps explain all types of narcissism and it explains some other problems that we can get into. The way it's usually viewed as is is think of narcissism as this pernicious, obnoxious, arrogant, self-involved personality trait. And you start with a little bit of it that's pretty bad. And then you go all the way up to uh, extreme where it's disordered and there's many, many problems. So it starts out as bad and, and there's more bad. But as we already covered, the problem with that view is for a long time, really since the inception of the concept of narcissism, we had this idea of healthy narcissism. There's plenty Plenty of evidence for it. Again, think of it as having slightly rose-colored glasses for yourself, uh, at least feeling exceptional, unique compared to the other 7 billion people on the planet, even if privately. Uh, and the, the problem is th that there's all kind of, that's only associated with positive, uh, positive measures of self-esteem, of capacity for relationships and our study for empathy. And if you look at people who have zero narcissism, and I'll introduce my term for that in, in a moment, that's a problem as well. So it's really where people lack any healthy narcissism or healthy self-enhancement or they self-enhance too much where they become disordered. You want to think of Imagine a spectrum at zero. There are problems at zero. Imagine a spectrum at 10. There are problems at 10. This is where people are so, if you think of narcissism as this pervasive universal tendency to drive to feel special, the people at 10 are so addicted to it, they turn away from love, relationships, truth. Again, lie, steal, cheat, do whatever it takes to get their high. They soothe themselves by feeling special. And then in the center is where we find uh, the moderate self-enhancement or, or what I've called uh, healthy narcissism. So as soon as you start viewing the spectrum that way, a lot of things become a lot of things become clearer, including the fact that we also know people can be extremely high in in trait narcissism without being disordered. So think of some a narcissist as someone who's dependent on or addicted to feeling special. Uh, if they become so addicted that they have diagnosable problems, that's when they have narcissistic personality disorder. But not all narcissists are diagnosable with, with, with a, a disorder of some kind. Uh, so I think I want to address your question in pieces. That's really the first piece, helping people understand that there's a spectrum and that we can lie along any point within that spectrum. 
And if people are interested or who are listening and where they fall, actually, my colleagues and I developed a measure for the narcissism spectrum scale. And I have a brief version of it on my website that you can access just by going to the narcissismtest.com or drcraigmalkin.com and click on the test tab. If you have trouble spelling narcissism, in fairness, I often did early on, but now I've spelled it so much that it, it's kind of second nature. But you can also get to it through my website. And you can take it, and it'll give you feedback and test results. You can see where you fall on the narcissism spectrum as I've described it. So, Craig, I actually took the narcissism test that you offer in your book, and I want to talk to you about the results. But before I do, I just need to take a quick break to talk about this week's sponsor. If you listen to the show regularly, then you know that I often talk about how important it is for you to take care of yourself. And this week's sponsor makes it easier to do just that. Their name is TakeCareOf.com, or CareOf, and they're a monthly service that delivers personalized vitamins directly to you. And they have a special offer for you, just for being a Relationship Alive listener, that I'll tell you about in just a moment. More than 90% of us are apparently deficient in at least one important vitamin or nutrient. Now, Care Of makes it easy to find out exactly what you need to support your health goals, because all you have to do is take their online quiz, which is fun and super quick, and in which they ask you about your lifestyle, your goals, your diet, and then they follow up the quiz with the recommendations that are made by their scientific advisory board. So from that, they come up with a personalized daily package of vitamins just for you. Now, what I was looking for was to balance out my nutritional regimen to make sure I wasn't deficient in anything, and also for a little help staying focused and relaxed in a life that can occasionally be a little stressful. So after taking their quiz, Care-of had a custom-designed regimen of vitamins and supplements just for me, and I was excited to try it. And... Maybe you're like me, where taking on anything new or establishing a new habit can be a little challenging. So Care-of actually makes that easy as well and interesting with their daily packs, which, along with being super convenient, also have an interesting quote or question or intention on each package, which helped me look forward to and to remember each daily pack that I needed to take it because I was curious to see what they would be telling me about that day or asking me. I also really like that they're transparent about how they source all of their vitamins and supplements and that they offer vegan and vegetarian options to match your specific dietary needs. And of course, all of this is in support of you to be able to meet the nutritional and health goals that are important to you and specific to your body so that you can feel nourished and able to show up in your life and in your relationship. And that's something that I've been feeling really good about as I take my care of vitamins each day. So as I mentioned at the beginning, Care Of has a special offer for you. For 25% off your first month of personalized Care Of vitamins, you visit TakeCareOf.com. Use the promo code ALIVE at checkout. That's 25% off at 
takecareof.com with the coupon code ALIVE. Make sure you take the quiz, um, see what they recommend for you. You can add anything else that you want. And I just want to say I appreciate you taking care of you. It's really important. And thank you, of course, to Care Of for your support of the Relationship Alive podcast. And now back to the episode with Craig Malkin, where you can hear me talk about just how much of a narcissist I am. Yeah, what's funny. Okay, so I I took the test and... Fortunately, I, it was such a relief to me to find out that I'm not way up at the top of the of the spectrum. Um, though I I had a feeling I probably wouldn't be, but you know, you take those tests and you're like, uh, I really hope that this doesn't reveal something that everyone else around me has known for quite some time, and I'm going to discover right now. <laughs> So um, I was slightly above the average number, though, and I because you have the test in in the book, so that was the the version of the test that I took. Mm. Um, so it was it was interesting for me to see that and and to see. Fortunately, I think I I was pretty good in the healthy narcissism category, so it made sense to me of my experience. And then even when I thought about okay, I was a little above average in the the un. I guess it's the extreme narcissism um, category. Um, that actually helped me make sense too of some moments, especially when you quantify it as like, this is an addiction to feeling special. When I think about certain times in my life, when let's say that was compromised, my, my feeling special or important. Well, now that makes a lot more sense from the perspective of, oh, like there I am, a, a couple points above average um, in, in the uh, narcissism test that you offered. But not above the cutoffs in the book you're saying where it gives you the cutoffs for a score where this relates to where you want to keep an eye on how to keep yourself uh, in a healthy range. Are you saying um, that- no? So, like for example, you said if you scored twenty-seven or below, stay where you are on your your spectrum estimate. And then you said if you scored thirty-five to forty-one, move yourself up a notch. I actually scored a twenty-nine, so I, I was kind of in the gray zone between the twenty-seven or below, and then the next one that you described—the thirty-five to forty-one. I see. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of more or less the same, of course, because all of those, the ranges I described, this will help anybody who reads my book too. You, you really want to look at those specific cutoffs because that that difference of a couple of points isn't really, it's not statistically significant if I'm understanding what you're saying. Got it. Yeah. So um, I would have to, it's been a while since I looked at the cutoffs myself, but as long as you are below that next cutoff, you're kind of just in that first range. Awesome. Even if, even if it's a couple of points above. Oh, phew. phew yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I recommend that, that you take the test. Do you think someone could actually accurately fill it out for another person if they were trying to figure out what was going on with someone else in their life? Or is that really not an accurate thing to do? I think you can fill it out. A lot of times these self-report measures 
are used that way where a partner fills it out. It changes the nature of the test. I will say that we have not tested the narcissism uh, spectrum scale by asking partners to fill it out. But here's what you should know about the answer to that question is it turns out that we're actually really good at picking up, at least when it comes to a very specific type of narcissism. We haven't talked about the types yet. Yeah. You know, along that spectrum, there are going to be lots of different ways to feel special. And that's what explains the different types. When it comes to the more outgoing, charismatic, manipulative, arrogant, uh, chest thumping narcissist, as I say, the narcissist, I often say the narcissist we all know and loathe, everybody sort of recognizes that type. Uh-huh. And it turns out in the research that if we see somebody like that on social media or we have interactions with them in person or we just observe them in any other context, that when we rate them on narcissism, our ratings are pretty accurate compared to when that person fills out self-report or is assessed clinically where it turns out we're, we're pretty good at spotting that more outgoing kind of narcissism. So when it comes to filling out the test for somebody, if you're with a partner or a friend and you're wondering about them and they're that they're, they're the, the vain preening primping kind of loud version of narcissists you're 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 filling out of that questionnaire is kind of bring gonna bring you pretty close to an accurate picture yeah yeah and let's let's talk a little bit about some of the more subtle versions um that someone might kind of experience but not entirely be aware that that's what's going on so important yeah i often start conversations about narcissism and narcissists just as we did this is sort of the opening of rethinking narcissism my book i explain narcissism is not a diagnosis we've been we've talked about that neither is narcissist the only diagnosis is narcissistic personality disorder and when most of us think of narcissist or narcissism we do tend to think of that vain preening primping boastful braggart the problem is it's really a caricature a stereotype the reality is that not all narcissists care about looks or fame or money and some can be extremely quiet so if you get too focused on those features or those traits you miss signs of difficulty or trouble that have nothing to do with vanity or greed so very simply if you think of narcissism as a drive to feel special narcissists as people who are addicted to or dependent on it and then at the level of disorder they're severely addicted many ways to feel exceptional unique compared to the other seven billion people on the planet so we've talked about the obvious it's often called or overt i prefer extroverted narcissism as the term i think it's more precise uh, and they tend to and agree with statements like I find it easy to manipulate others uh, and I think I'm pretty special things along those lines uh, and they answer them in the extreme so you, you know these are people who might feel special because they accumulate lots of wealth or they accumulate fame again they're they're really out there but there's other kinds of 
ways of feeling special. Like you can feel like the most misunderstood person in the room. Introverted narcissists uh, don't particularly care about fame or money most of the time. They agree with statements like, I feel I'm temperamentally different from most people. I have problems no one else seems to understand. Sometimes they think of themselves as an undiscovered genius. If, if people only knew me, they would see. And there's yet a third. I'm sure there's going to be more as we continue to research called communal narcissists. These are people who agree with statements like, I'm the most helpful person I know. And one day I'll be no, the world will know me for the good deeds I've done. So obviously this is someone doesn't care about vanity or, or greed. So if you just think of it, this is really about uh, becoming too reliant on feeling exceptional or unique compared to other people, you can now start to imagine it doesn't have to be for positive reasons. I mean, you can meet somebody who feels like they're the ugliest person in the room and they're deeply invested in that. And that's a way of feeling exceptional or unique. Yeah. Yeah. And this might be a good time to talk about something that's so important because lest, you know, we focus too much on the label or even why like this desire to feel special let's go maybe deeper to why would someone have this desire to feel special apart from the fact that we all have it and this is something that i've addressed on the show before but that's i think one of our universal needs you know to feel loved to feel special to feel certainty to feel like it's just it's in there in the mix and yet you talk about this um and i think it's so important when it when we start the conversation about how you actually reach someone who might be uh, you know up somewhere other than healthy on the narcissism spectrum um which is what's underlying that need to feel special and maybe that will help us find some compassion and connection for people who are struggling with this issue absolutely i mean i work with People in my practice, I have both with couples and individually uh, worked with people who, have nar who are so extreme in the trait that they do have narcissistic personality disorder. And even that, there's sort of a range of where you can feel some hope. We have to enter the conversation, first of all, by recognizing that before you even think about, can I reach this person, you have to think about safety. That, that is uh, not if, if it were the case that everybody who was narcissistic was uh, abusive and dangerous to be around, we would have that as part of the diagnosis. It's not part of the diagnosis. Um, the reason is that there are plenty of people who either are narcissistic or, or even have narcissistic personality disorder who aren't abusive. But. I always like to refocus people's attention. If you're thinking about, can I reach this person? You want to think about what I talk about as the three stop signs in rethinking narcissism first. And that first is abuse, emotional and physical abuse. If you're, have a partner who calls you names, who puts you down, who relentlessly demeaning, dismissive, that's emotional abuse. If they are physically aggressive, uh, it, I, I, it, it's not really crucial to figure out why they're 
abusive, people get distracted by that. People can become abusive because of they, ha they have a, an addiction that's fueling it. They can become abusive because they have tension over some other problem like gambling. And they can become abusive because they're extremely narcissistic. But if you see abuse, you want to address that. It's not on you as a partner to end abuse. It's on somebody who's being abusive. So if you see that, the reason I call it a stop sign is that until the abuse has ended, it, you can't be safe in the relationship trying to reach your partner in different ways or trying to make change. This is such a part of my training as a therapist and a couples therapist that if we see if we hear signs of abuse, I'll typically meet with a couple one-on-one -on -one so I can ask them you know, about their safety in the relationship so I can get a sense of just how safe they are. If you see signs of abuse, you really can't even work together as a couple until that's ended. So yeah. you want to get help figuring out next steps. If you see denial, whether the problem is a partner who has a substance abuse problem or gambling or extreme narcissism, it can't change. It's not going to change until that person is willing to at least say, I think there's something wrong that I need to work on. I need to get some help. And the third stop sign is psychopathy. That's a pattern of remorseless lies and manipulation. Not all people who are extremely narcissistic are, are psychopathic, but people who are psychopathic, actually, their neurology is different. They don't just have empathy blocks, as we see, where the, that drive to feel special gets in the way of thinking about other people's needs and feelings when somebody is narcissistic. People who are psychopathic actually may not be able to experience empathy in the same way. So mm -hmm. if you see those three stop signs, you want to get help thinking about next steps. We're really talking about if you if you don't see those stop signs, if somebody's in the milder range or they might have narcissistic personality disorder, but none of those other signs, this is where you might be able to reach them. Yeah. OK. And what are some of those? What are things that you might notice where you'd think, oh, OK, like this, this isn't the extremely vain chest thumping narcissist um, or preening narcissist, but this is one of the more subtle kinds. What are some of the warning signs that you might notice where you'd be like, oh, this, this could be what's going on with this person? It's a great question because one of the reasons I wrote Rethinking Narcissism is, is to also direct people to more reliable signs of difficulty or even danger. And when you think about Extreme narcissism, even in the, in the milder range, say when it doesn't tip into disorder as an attempt to manage attachment insecurity. Once again, attachment insecurity is when you're feeling sad, scared, lonely. This is a person who, for whatever reason, has come to mistrust, not feel trust that they can turn to somebody for comfort or care in mutually supportive ways. So they soothe themselves with feeling special instead. As soon as somebody does that, I think of it as kind of doing an end run around healthy vulnerability. Mm. Uh, they, they are loath to be vulnerable in any way because that means you have to be open to being in somebody else's hands. That, that's part of what attachment security is about. So there are predictable ways of doing that. One of the most common that I see is what I call playing emotional hot potato. You want to think of this like playing uh, hot potato only with feelings of insecurity. 
an example I often use is I had a, a, a woman I saw whose husband would stand over her shoulder while she was applying for jobs and say, are you sure you want to do that one? Maybe that one's out of your reach or it's a, you're, you're, you're out of the, they're out of your league. So he wasn't really sure what he was doing in his life. He feel, felt in a really unsure place himself. Uh, but rather than turn to her with that and look for some kind of soothing, instead, he made himself feel like he was in the know by casting doubt on her certainty about herself and what she was doing. Think of that as, I don't want to feel insecure. Here, you take those feelings. So the person says and does things to stir those up. That, that's a way of bypassing any of those feelings of vulnerability and doing it in a way that makes that, in, in that case, the, the, the husband felt like, again, he was special. He had some special knowledge. He, he didn't even know about the job market she was looking at. That's how, that, that's how extreme it was. But you can see that's not, that's not overt abuse. Uh, but it does undermine somebody's confidence. So that's one example uh, that can come out very early on. Uh, and it's not so severe that it's obvious like the other things people talk about. Yeah, that reminds me of a couple of the other warning signs that you mention um, because they surprised me, honestly. I was like, oh, yeah, I've, I experienced, I've experienced that and I see how it could be. Uh, what you're talking about. And the, those two that I'm thinking about, they seem a, a little connected. One is placing, um, placing other people on a, on a pedestal. Um, and then, and then there's that like twinning phenomenon, like we're, we're exactly like each other. And, and isn't that amazing? Yeah. See, we, this is, again, it cuts, if you have to rely on feeling special uh, instead of depending on people, for for a sense of feeling good about yourself or, or, or soothing. It means always bypassing those vulnerable experiences. So uh, putting people on pedestals. Again, I, I, I mentioned this study. It's worth going back to in rethinking narcissism. There are the study of 40,000 couples where one or both partners viewed each other as better than they actually were smarter, warmer, funnier, and obje objective measures. It was just like, no, you're about average or below, but the partner thought otherwise. That's putting people on a pedestal. It seems to be a part of normal love relationships and it actually keeps people together. Uh, but if it becomes so rigid that you feel like you're being cemented to a pedestal, like you can do no wrong. It's not okay for you to make mistakes. Now you're, that's a sign that this person is struggling with uh, subtler and, or maybe even extreme narcissism because what they're doing is they're, they're trying to avoid feeling vulnerable. If they, if they've convinced themselves that you're so special, like you're a God or an idol, you're, you're perfect. Perfect people don't disappoint that mm. you, you can never let them down. And if somebody is so narcissistically driven that they're afraid to be vulnerable, then if there's no disappointment, then there's no vulnerability and they can feel safe from that experience. They never have to fear feeling that at all. The problem is, of course, that it's not a real relationship. Every, disappointment is part of relationships. Working that through is part of a secure, loving relationship in working it through in healthy ways. And inevitably we get knocked off the pedestal, often in anger. 
uh, because it's not a sudden realization. Oh my gosh, you're not just that you're not perfect, but it's this sense of the, the, the anger is partially, and I don't want to be around you because I might be vulnerable. So that's the pushing off the pedestal. Why? And then why people engage in a twin fantasy uh, where if somebody's narcissistic that you're close to, they focus on everything that's the same between the two of you. Oh, we love the same movies. We love the same books. Some of that is fun. Again, some of it has roots in something normal. Uh, we're, we're, it's a special relationship to be a twin. One mind and two bodies. But you can see if it becomes insistent then it's about again bypassing get doing an end run around an experience where oh my gosh you mean you don't see things the same way as me because that can be kind of a letdown you're not on the same page and that requires being open to feeling vulnerable about the fact that oh my gosh you mean this person doesn't always isn't always going to agree with me and being able to work that out instead of feeling like you never have to fear that that the two of you are ever going to disagree on anything uh, right so you never have to face it yeah what this reminds me of is well, for one, I think you're right that some of these things are part of healthy relating, particularly at the in the beginning stages when we're when we've got that oxytocin and dopamine coursing through our veins with our with our new beloved. And and that to me just suddenly I had this light bulb flash where I was like, "Oh, that's why people who have narcissistic qualities do get into relationships. I mean, it makes sense on the level of that's one great way to feel special, but these two in particular, the the pedestal and the and the twinning, like that's something that actually does bring you together and being on the receiving end of that, like knowing, wow, it it feels great to be put on a pedestal for a little while and uh, and it feels great to have someone being like, oh, we're so much alike. It kind of reinforces your own sense of specialness, right? Um, so th- to me, that explains why why narcissists actually do end up in relationships. But then, you know, what we know about relationship development, and we actually just had Ellen Bader and Peter Pearson on the show talking about this, is that you have to you have to go through that place where you're no longer in symbiosis with your partner to get to like the healthier horizon of of being uh, having a, a good mix between different being differentiated and being securely attached. Um, and so that's where the problem, I th- it sounds like, of narcissism really emerges because you're, you're trying to do something natural in a relationship, which is to, to be different from each other. And then the, the system that really needs that, that, those things that reinforce specialness can't take it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, I forget where I read this years ago, but this can all be summarized as no conflict, no closeness. Mm. Very early on in a relationship, we, it is normal to idealize each other. Uh, that honeymoon stage, yes, when the oxytocin is flowing and that's fun and it's wonderful. These early warning signs can appear in uh, – we all engage in them sometimes. And again, a certain amount of it is, is healthy and normal. It's when you see it rigidly and frequently and across the board that you have to start worrying 
and wondering how much can this person handle the normal experience of we are different people. And that means that I might not always see things the same way. And can that be anything but catastrophic and dangerous? Can we still remain connected? That differentiation you're talking about. We're two separate people, but we are securely attached. And if there's this rigid insistence on uh, always feeling special in the relationship uh, or that twin sh- that twinship effect where we're always the same, then you can never progress beyond that. And you never really learn, is this person capable of negotiating needs and seeing me as a separate, complete, whole other person that they can still be close to? Right, right. And that reminds me of the warning sign you mentioned of, of someone trying to kind of control you, but it's, it's a little behind. It's not necessarily overt control. It's this stealthy behind the scenes um, because you then you never have to meet each other in vulnerability to actually have a conversation about something as simple as where we're going to go for dinner or something bigger like are we going to move to um, you know Tanzania together Um, exactly yeah yeah so stealth control comes about again you can see the common thread throughout these if somebody's so narcissistic that they can't handle any any feelings of vulnerability, sadness, feelings of uh, re- rejection or, or disappointment. They're all normal. If they can't handle that, then it's going to be very hard for them to directly ask for what they want to engage you in a conversation about, I would like to do this. So the more narcissistic someone is, the more likely they are sometimes in subtle ways to go around that all together through what I call stealth control by arranging events to get their needs met. And the classic example I provide of this, uh, I think I even talk about this in Rethinking Narcissism is the, uh, I, I was working with somebody who's partner would come in at the last minute, say with concert tickets or something really fun and sweep them off their feet. And, and they didn't really have time to plan. And that was fun, of course, and exciting. You can just imagine like the thrill of this surprise. But anytime she wanted to go somewhere, like check out a new restaurant or go to this movie, his answer was, well, I'm bored or, or I'm too tired or I'm bored with Chinese food or whatever. There was always some reason not to do it. And she slowly, slowly realized that she was sort of orbiting his preferences organized mm-hmm. around what he liked to do without his even asking. It's like a, it's like a slow, subtle attrition of your will. It doesn't become a part of the conversation. anymore. we're just doing what this other person wants. Right. And that, uh, I think almost, uh, brings us to the opposite end of that narcissism spectrum, right? Where, where the, the co partner that's a, most appropriate for a narcissist is someone who more and more erodes who they are and what they want. And, and like, that's kind of the only way it can work. And I'm putting work in quotes cause it's obviously not really mm. working. Absolutely. So yeah, the, it's a nice segue to one of the most important, uh, contributions 
that I worked on in rethinking narcissism that people find so helpful, especially people in relationships with somebody who's narcissistic, is this idea of echoism. We talked about healthy narcissism. In, in rethinking narcissism, I introduced the term echoism. You want to think of these as people who lack any self-enhancement. They rarely or never feel special. Usually they've had experiences that lead them to fear that they might become a burden. Growing up, say they had a, a, a fragile parent who was depressed or rageful. So they worried about having too much of an impact or too much effect on, on that parent. So, you know, people who develop echoism agree with statements like, uh, I'm afraid of becoming a burden and I'm at a loss when people ask me what I want or what I need. Uh, and you can see the reason I came up with this term is that, um, in the original myth of Narcissus, uh, Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection due to a curse. Uh, Echo was a, a nymph who fell in love with Narcissus, and she was cursed to have no voice of her own. She repeated the last few words that she heard. That was all she could do. And people who struggle with echoism, like Echo, tend to fall into relationships with extremely narcissistic friends and partners, or at least they have trouble recognizing and pulling themselves out because they're already afraid of seeming narcissistic in any way. So they, are, they become adept at echoing the needs and feelings of others. So it makes for, yes, a match, not a happy one for 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 either partner sometimes, but people can get very stuck uh, when they struggle with echoism and they wind up finding a partner who is more in the extreme range of narcissism. Right. Yeah. I, I thought that was so beautiful how you brought that in. And, and that is such an important part of the myth, um, as is recognizing that echo just, you know, fades away to nothingness where that's mm. all that's left is, is her voice and repeating. Um, and so I, I really appreciate the, the dynamic there that you illustrate. And, and also to me, I was like, oh, right. And that is probably one reason why, like, just thinking back to my friend, when she got out of that relationship, um, she felt this huge reclaiming of who she was that, that had been undermined. And, and I realized that I'm talking about a friend who's a woman, but this, there are, there are narcissists who are women too, and men who find themselves in these roles. So it's not a gendered thing, right? No, it's not gender. And what's interesting is I think we might find a slight gender difference. So just a, a note on the research on traits. Uh, we tend to think of men when we think of uh, narcissism and extreme narcissism in particular. And while men outnumber women uh, in the extreme range, they only slightly outnumber them. Uh, it, you know, the, the rates aren't that high to begin with, and men outnumber women two to one when it becomes to, when it comes to narcissistic personality disorder. But we're, when we're just talking about the subtle range, somebody who uh, qualifies as above average in narcissism, uh, 
uh, enough to be called a, a narcissist, the, the, there's only slightly more men than women. And, and I think we'll find the same with echoism, just because echoism is really about being attuned to others' needs and feelings, often at the expense of your own. In general, on average, women are more socialized to focus on relationships and caring and others. But what we found, and I think this is speaks to your point, is I didn't we didn't find a gender difference in echoism so far. Interesting. So Interesting. it might be slight and we haven't picked it up yet. Um, there are two important things that I want to make sure that we cover before we end. And um, one of them is the the one that we're going to cover second is talking about what you do, because <laughs> I think that's a really important part of your book. Um, and you go into it in detail. I love how you, you talk about uh, being in relationship with narcissists, but also like how to do it in your family, how to how to cope and strategize at the workplace. And um, so there's a, a huge scope in your book that we're not going to be able to get to here. We're going to focus on the relational component. Um, but before we do that, I want to know, like, if you are listening to this and you're hearing all these words and you're like, holy mackerel, like that might be me. I might be kind of veering into the narcissistic end of the spectrum. For one thing, I want you to feel like, like, I don't want you to feel horrible. I want you to, I, I want to celebrate that you're hearing this and thinking like, oh my God, that could be me. Um, it's probably worth taking that test that Craig was mentioning earlier. Um, but Craig, what, what could you offer someone who's sitting here listening to us and thinking, wow, that, that actually might be me. I might be doing that in my relationships. What do I do? And I can offer hope to people who are listening and f identify with the experience of extreme narcissism. Because as long as you have that awareness, I mean, a big part for me of change and growth and healing is really compassionate self-awareness. And I really try to help people get to that place. And if you're at least aware, okay, this might be me, we already know from the research that what keeps people, as I said earlier, tethered to the center, that is where they might have just moderate self-enhancement, is secure attachment. We know from the research that extremely narcissistic people aren't securely attached. So to the extent that you can start to become comfortable with normal, vulnerable feelings, owning them in yourself when you're sad, scared, lonely, testing out in relationships, uh, sharing those feelings directly and trusting that people actually care, even if you don't nail it at work, even if you don't make tons of money, even if you aren't, uh, even if you're, you're not, not an undiscovered genius, like, that people still care about what you're feeling. So working with uh, therapists who are trained, I, I think what we're learning is based on, I'm going to throw a fancy phrase out, communal activation. It's an area of research that shows that, especially in this, in this subtle range or the, uh, the milder range of narcissism, uh, that people uh, who struggle in that way, they're, they don't, they're not missing empathy. It's blocked and it's blocked by this drive to feel special. And 
there are therapies, I practice these forms, that are rooted in attachment research. Again, helping people relate in ways when they are feeling vulnerable that they can trust they can depend on others. Therapies like schema therapy, accelerated experiential dynamic therapy or ADP, EFT for couples, Dr. Sue Johnson's model. All of these therapies are helping people learn how to relate in securely attached ways. And if you can do that, you're not going to rely on feeling special. You're not going to tip into the extreme because to the extent that you can truly depend on people in healthy, emotionally mutual ways, you won't be addicted to feeling special. Yeah. And this reminds me a lot about, um, Alex Katahakis's work. She was on the show back in episode 116 and she was talking about like how the pathways of addiction get created and 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 she describes how when you're young and your attachment bonds aren't necessarily being uh, fostered the, the way they ought to, um, how it becomes really easy to find shortcuts to feeling better um, rather than what you learn in a securely attached environment, which is that, oh, if I get connected to someone and feel safe and vulnerable and open that's that's another way it's a it's a more sophisticated way of feeling better you know it's not quite the easy pathway that that then can get um you know hooked into any kind of addictive behavior right where you get like quick rushes of of dopamine to the system and that that kind of helps you deal with your discomfort um so i'm thinking about that and um, yeah, how powerful it is that that while relationships can bring out the dysfunction, there's so much potential in relationship if you have that awareness to lean in and and either create or reinforce that other pathway of how you deal with your discomfort and your dysregulation by by regulating with each other. That's absolutely right. Co-regulation, regulating with each other. We heal and can experience deep healing in relationships when we experience uh, the person that we're, with, that we're with in a way that we're that we maybe didn't experience growing up as someone that we're safe in their hands and they experience us in the same way. That changes us. This is what we're learning from this research. And yes, when people have had an experience where they don't have that basic sense of trust, where they're insecurely attached, they turn to all kinds of substitutes. Drugs are one, you know, gambling, pornography, and uh, an addictive drive to feel special, self-soothing in that way. And again, I want to come back to this as a central idea in rethinking narcissism. Speaking to anybody who's listening who thinks they're struggling with extreme narcissism or somebody with a partner when they're not seeing those three stop signs, um, that learning how to relate in a securely attached way is the answer to the extent that you can rely on people love and depend on them, you will not rely on feeling special. And what we're doing is replacing feeling special for the world or for others with feeling special to a partner or even a group of people. If it's a religious group that you're a part of where you feel special in their eyes. 
Got it. Yeah, because that kind of connection actually reinforces and intimacy reinforces a specialness that's not quite so fragile. That's exactly right. It's 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 more lasting. Uh, the, those addictive replacements are addictive because they're they're controllable. Uh, w- one of the reasons people turn to say uh, dr- uh, alcohol or other drugs or or narcissism to soothe themselves is precisely because unlike people, you can buy and sell money. With narcissism, to some extent, you can control your looks by dressing really nicely and making yourself up uh, as best you can. Even in the research, it turns out that people who pride themselves on their looks narcissistically, they engage in something called effective adornment. That is, they're really good at putting themselves together, but it turns out they're not they're no more attractive than the average person when they're not allowed to do that. So these are controllable ways of feeling special. Hmm. And now let's just, um, I, I love the hope here because that's, I think one of the unfortunate things about like earlier approaches to, to narcissism is by lumping everyone together. I think it didn't give people a lot of hope that, that any, that someone could change or that a situation like that, where you're involved in with someone who is, has narcissistic tendencies, that there's any hope for change. Um, and, so let's assume that we're not seeing those stop signs that you mentioned of abuse, denial, psychopathy. And what might I do if I'm, if I'm saying, okay, like this is my partner. I want to know that I have given it my all before I leave. Um, because I don't, I don't see being, uh, with a narcissist forever. Like that doesn't sound like my idea of happiness, but I'm inspired by Craig Malkin's view that there's hope here and change is possible. So what could, what could I do to help try to bring my narcissist back into the healthy zone? Such a, a an important question. Yeah, no, there is hope. There's always anybody who wants to change can change. And I firmly believe that if they're willing to do the work and we can uh, invite uh, people to a, a healthier range where they're where they can meet us in mutually satisfying, caring ways. And I go over all of the research and rethinking narcissism. I mentioned earlier communal activation. You want to think of this as sort of lighting up areas of the brain devoted to relationships and caring and connection that we we're born with this. Human beings are, uh, are, are social creatures. It's part of how we survive. This is the, you even talk about how, when you're using the pronouns like we and us, that that is activating those parts of the brain. Yeah, there's about a there's over a dozen I, I mentioned in, in my in my book, but there's even more now. Just simple things like using uh, communal language. We are us uh, flashing images of a mother holding an infant, of a teacher helping a student, of asking 
somebody who tests as narcissistic, who actually scores on a test as a narcissist or not, maybe not disordered. Maybe they are, but they're in the extreme enough that they can, they test high. Uh, and you can ask them to put themselves in the shoes of an abuse survivor that they're watching, for example, in a video. And uh, it's called uh, empathic induction. And they'll actually show a reduction in their narcissistic traits. It is like it's reactivating the attachment system. Again, we're social creatures. We're meant to survive by being with people. So we have this attachment system is part of our evolutionary survival. It's early experiences that interfere with its full expression. So if somebody's in the subtler range, I wanted to offer very simple ways of tapping into that communal activation, lighting up that area of the brain by inviting inviting a secure attachment experience. So I describe what I call empathy prompts. This is what you can try. There are two parts to an empathy prompt. The first part, part one, is to voice the importance of the relationship. This is where you're act, you're you're reminding the person that they're special to you. Mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. This is attachment language. And then you voice your vulnerable feelings. We tend, when we're feeling disconnected in relationships, sometimes we go to anger, sometimes we shut down and move away. Instead of saying what we're feeling underneath, which is I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm afraid, I'm worried, whatever it is, that's the vulnerable piece. So an example would be... Uh, you know, I, I would often coach a client, say something like, you're my husband and my best friend and you'll always be important to me. And that's why I feel so sad when you are give me the silent treatment. It's like I'm losing the person that I love the most. So that would be an empathy prompt. You're reminding the person of their special relationship with you and, and, and the place that you hold in each other's lives. And then you're sharing the impact that they're having on you. And most people, if they're capable of empathy at all, melt when they hear statements like this. It really is an invitation to hear what you're feeling on the inside. Uh, another example, I'll go back to the, the, the husband who's looking over the, the, the woman's shoulder commenting on, oh, isn't that out of your league? Or when she's applying for jobs, uh, I might ask, I might help her say something like, um, your opinion means the world to me. You're my husband. I look up to you. And when you suggest I only apply to easy jobs, uh, I'm afraid you don't think that much of me. Like I'm, I don't, I'm not that important in your eyes. So these are examples of empathy prompts. If you do not see shifts with this, I even say in the book, like within a three weeks, um, I don't hold out a whole lot of hope because then you might be dealing with a more extreme situation. I certainly don't hold out hope if you don't seek out a a couples therapy where people can help with these kinds of, uh, with help changing the nature of the relationship between the two of you to a more securely attached one. Yeah. So you're looking for that melting or that, that person like actually having some understanding and um, maybe even taking some responsibility for their, how their actions have affected you. 
Absolutely. You want to hear things like affirming statements like I love you, too, and I don't want you to feel sad or how long have you felt sad like this? Or I'm sorry, I never want you to feel like a failure. Apologizing even right. Validating. I know my sarcasm hurts you. And you want to look for signs that this person is not shifting. Right. You're doing your part. This is as much as any, but I'm not even asking. I'm not ever going to ask somebody to be like a therapist to their partner. These are ways that we should talk to our partners anyway, based on the based on the research. So I want to make that point. Right. If this, you know, I often say if it doesn't work with somebody who's not narcissistic, it's not going to work with someone who's narcissistic. These are things that are just known to help invite a more securely attached way of relating. If you get responses like, why are you saying this to me? Right. Defensive. Uh, attacking or I get busy that's all what's the problem or what about what I've been going through sort of hijacking the conversation or worse blaming you you're just too sensitive those are really really bad signs because if you lead with how important that person is to you and follow up with you know that's why I feel sad or that's why I feel afraid uh, you should see signs of empathy got it yeah is it ever effective to is there any way to tell someone i think you might be kind of a narcissist in a way that's ever generative or helpful in a in a relationship i don't recommend it because for the same reason i approach both individual and couples therapy where the focus should be on what your experience is and sharing that with the person that you're trying to remain close to. If you're describing their behavior, if you're labeling them, again, if it doesn't work with somebody who's not narcissistic, it's not going to work with somebody who is. So as soon as you say, here's what's wrong with you, even if you try to do it in the most loving way, it immediately puts people on the defensive. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're far less likely to be open to hearing what you have to say. It's, it's better to simply share that you, that, that when they, uh, criticize you or, or raise their voice or, or question your choices that it leaves you feeling like they don't, uh, you know, it leaves me feeling like you don't think much of me. You want to talk about the impact it has on you, the specific behaviors that's leave the, leave the diagnosis and the, and the labeling to whoever they go to for help. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you find yourself going to therapy, it sounds like that'd be a great idea to get help and support in a situation like this. If your therapist is open to influence and they haven't already read uh, Craig's book, Rethinking Narcissism, you might want to just kind of surreptitiously pass it off to them so they have a chance to read it. No, um, I, I, I have clients who, uh, I've, who have come to me because their partner gave, me, gave them my book. Mm-hmm. I, I've over the years, I've, I've probably had uh, in the last couple of years, I've probably had at, at least f- five, I would say, come to me because their partner said, I think you should read this book. And then they come see me. Mm, wow. Well, that must be profound to see that that your book is having that kind of impact as well, where people are willing to come come forward like that. Yeah, no, I feel honored and grateful that it's having that kind of impact. And I'm really Yeah, I find it very moving when somebody calls me up on the phone and that's happened too and says, I read your book and 
you know, I've, I felt like a monster all my life and I've, I've left some wreckage in my relationships, but I really want to change this. And your book gave me hope. I get calls like that too. Mm, yeah. Awesome. Um, well, I do want to mention that you you brought up Sue Johnson as someone whose couples work you recommend to help people build attachment in a secure attached relationship. Um, she's been on the show a couple of times, um, so you can listen to Sue Johnson in episode 27 and in episode 82. Actually, she was also on in episode 100, but those two that I just mentioned are probably the most relevant for this conversation that we've been having today. And um, meanwhile, Craig, I'm so appreciative of your time and the, the vast wisdom that you have on this particular topic. I know that I feel hopeful, not only from having read your book, but also being able to hear it from you as well, that this is something that we can shift in, in our world, that it doesn't have to be an epidemic, that it can be something that um, ultimately helps us find more pathways to connection and feeling special in sustainable ways, because there's nothing wrong, I think, with feeling special. It's just doing it in a way that actually brings us closer. That's exactly right. No, I'm so glad. I'm glad I, I could offer some hope. And that is truly the way I see it. It, it. Really, the image I want to leave everybody with is think of attachment security as a tether. And it keeps us it keeps us rooted in a healthy place, whether we're trying to make sure we don't become too tipped into narcissism or two tips into echoism so yeah no we're, we're not I, I i don't believe we're for all kinds of reasons that we're in the we're in danger of being taken over by some narcissism epidemic i'm i'm uh, encouraged by the efforts i see to educate people about emotions about attachment about managing and recognizing emotions. As soon as you do that, you're already moving into an, an area where you're not going to tip into either of these extremes. Mm, great. Well, if you are looking to find out more information about Craig Malkin, you can visit drcraigmalkin.com. It's drcraigmalkin.com. Uh, definitely pick up his book, Rethinking Narcissism. And uh, we will, of course, have links um, to all those things and the uh, narcissism test in the transcript, which you can get, again, if you visit neilsatin.com slash narcissism i think is what i said and uh or you can just text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions craig melkin thank you so much for being here with us today thank you so much for having me neil it's been a lot of fun thank you for listening to another episode of relationship alive if you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. 
Take care and see you next time.